Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta, and today we're going to flip the script a little bit. I'm speaking with Gary Nolan, and Gary is a professional in marketing, but at the same time, uh, spends a lot of time with science podcasts and has an interest in science and really an enthusiasm towards sharing what are the facts about the science we deal with. You can find his website at www, like all websites, we should just leave that off, yeah. shouldn't we? <laughs> um, LogicalLibertarian.com. And he's also on Twitter all the time at LGCL Libertarian. Uh, and that's Gary Nolan. So welcome to the podcast, Gary. Thanks, Dr. Folta. Appreciate, appreciate you having me on. Oh, geez, just call me Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's a that's a, it's a big part of the communication process, right? Yep. Um, you know, um, I always had such a hard time with the folks who uh, made themselves separate by title. You know, my dad, you know, he, he put on both his shoes and his pants. He still does, except when he doesn't wear pants. Uh, you know, to go to work every single day for the last sixty years, and you know, nobody uh, gave him a special title, but he works harder than I do, and is. A lot smarter than I am. Um, so anyway, uh, we're off to a flying start. Maybe it's like uh, nicknames. It's okay if everybody else calls you by it. You're just not allowed to call yourself by it. That's right, yeah. And <laughs> I always made my mom use it, though. And I, and I always use it when I'm booking a plane ticket. Because when something goes crazy and then you call up, they go, oh, yes, Dr. Fulta, we'll fix that for you right away. You know, it's like, you better. I'm needed in surgery in one hour, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, all right. Um, so why don't you explain the concept of today's interview? Sure. Um, so the idea was a lot of times, you know, I listen to your podcast and because I listen to a lot, I mean, a, a really a lot of science podcasts, I've learned a lot, but I've never went to school for science. So I don't have a professional background in it or anything uh, of that nature. So I'm sort of piecing all of my scientific knowledge together by your podcast, the podcast from like uh, AAAS, Nature, The Naked Scientists. Um, a lot of the BBC science uh, stuff is really good as well. Um, I really fell in love with The Infinite Monkey Cage was probably the first one that I liked. But as I kind of hear it from different people or whatever, you know, certain stuff starts to make sense to me. And then I hear people out there who really don't understand science and I'm like uh, you know most people I don't think they willfully want to be ignorant they just don't know any better and so when they when they don't have good access to good information and the good information seems so complicated that they can't understand it in the first place they just don't put two and two together and come up with four so um, you know it's hard for people to take in as much information as I do I just happen to be at a desk job where I can listen to podcasts all day while I do my work yeah, but you're also willing to listen to different points of view from various podcasts and come up with your own synthesis. Yeah. 
And that's pretty much, an, that's a really interesting point about when we seek who is the audience we wish, wish to address. Is it people who are already open to the idea of science who just are looking for information to kind of build their arsenal? You know, or are we really trying to change hearts and minds of right. people who know nothing, right? And so it sounds to me like you're of that kind of uh, thinking that, you know, you appreciate the science, you're interested in it, and you're out to kind of sample the lazy Susan of science to ensure that you're getting the most comprehensive understanding. Exactly. And part of my pot, you know, when I started my page, obviously the, the name Libertarians in it. So it was more of a political thing um, than it was a science thing. But I loved science, and I had as and the reason I put logical in the front of it is because I said, you know, I'm going to take more of a scientific approach instead of being sort of some partisan hack or something like that. Uh, I'm going to try and use sort of critical thinking to come up with my things instead of just repeating what everybody else has heard or whatever. Um, but as time went on, I really fell in love with science, and I almost rarely ever write about politics anymore because I'm, I'm way more fascinated with science now, and I think most politicians like. You know, I think when you're younger, you kind of assume that they're world leaders. They must be really brilliant people. And and you see from a lot of them that they just aren't. They're just regular people like everybody else. And some of them are quite ignorant about some things. Some of them are quite smart about other things. Most of them are lawyers. They're not scientists. So they don't really understand science. And they make bad decisions, um, you know, because they don't understand science sometimes, you know, on policy pertaining to science. No, it's a really astute observation because scientists – you know, like, like I know how I am about things. I love the fact that I know enough to be able to say I have absolutely no idea and help me understand or show me how it works or, you know, it's that kind of idea that I already admit that I'm defeated. Right. Politicians, on the other hand, come from this all-knowing point of view where I already know the answer and it doesn't matter what anyone thinks. And we can think of a number of them in current politics, especially, yeah. who, you know, uh, I'm the greatest that ever lived. I know everything. I know it better than they do. It's that kind of bravado that keeps you from actually learning more and getting better. And yeah. – uh, and sadly, and that, uh, the, one, the one group that doesn't seem to do that, you almost never hear from them, the Supreme Court. I don't know if you've ever l once listened to their actual audio arguments, but they ask questions and they kind of seem somewhat humble, which is odd. But, they, you know, you never see them on TV, <laughs> but they get along well. There's decorum there. They, you know, they still make their sort of partisan decisions sometimes. But if the rest of Washington acted like the Supreme Court, I think it'd be a lot better place. Well, yeah, but, but partisan decisions you should expect in a lot of ways because everybody's decisions in those veins are based upon their individual life experiences. And, you know, me as a professor, I think you find many people in academia lean much more politically left because they're very interested in the social aspect right. and they prioritize that. And to us, you know, we, 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 we didn't make any money growing up in terms of science. Uh, we paid less than most around in other comparable disciplines. And it's not what we're interested in. You know, we have a very different brass ring than other people. On the other hand, the farmers that we serve, they're constantly pinched by regulation. They're beat over the head with uh, rules and regulations that harm their bottom line. They... Um, you know, are, are, and I understand exactly when someone tells me I'm a Republican and I vote that way straight ticket, I go, you know what, if I was in your shoes, I would too, right. because I have a different set of rules that I have to play with, and I don't deal with the same garbage you have to face every day. So 
I don't judge people based on that D or that R. I try to understand where they're coming from. And, exactly. and, and, and when I really think of put myself in their shoes, I totally get it. And then when we both get it, then we kind of connect and we realize how do we solve some real problems. Exactly. And, and, and I think that's a really important thing. Cool. Yeah. So, um, Let's talk about science. So the main yeah. thing that your idea was, and this was pretty cool, was that you were going to ask me questions about some pressing issues in science to gain a little more clarity, and I would see if I could try to answer them. Absolutely. Thanks to your podcast, and I don't hope you don't mind me mentioning another, but there's a one from Cold Spring Harbor Labs called Base Pairs is really good. Um, and those are really the only two that I've, I've heard, you know, talk quite a bit about, um, you know, gene editing and so forth. So... Um, you know, your two podcasts have really kind of opened my eyes to that science a little bit and, you know, made me more understanding of it. But a lot of times I know when I try and talk to people about it, you know, they don't get it as well as I do. And I certainly don't get it anywhere near as well as you do. So I kind of put together a handful of questions that I thought, well, okay, for people who don't know much about biology and don't really understand gene editing and stuff like that, you know, maybe I could ask the kind of questions to you in such a way to kind of put that puzzle together for them a little bit. That sounds perfect. So go ahead, shoot. So the first one I thought about was, I I know most people understand gene editing as GMOs. um, And what you're doing is editing the DNA of a particular organism. So can you explain how researchers map out a DNA strand to understand where to edit in the first place? Yeah, actually, that's a really good question. It's actually become amazingly simple that if you go back to 1999 when we first sequenced the rabbitopsis, and when I say we, I'm talking about the you know larger scientific uh, discipline. Uh, human genome came out, then eventually a rabbitopsis was you know the little laboratory mustard, the tiny little genome, and that was done by sequencing different pieces of DNA in small little bits, piece by piece, and then looking for where they overlapped. And then you could start to build this contiguous piece. It's like if I gave you A, B, C, D, and then I gave you L, M, N, O, and I gave you uh, C, D, E, F, and then I gave you, you know, you can see like you could take these little pieces that have maybe four letters, but from different parts of the alphabet, that if you stack them upon each other, you would eventually get from the beginning from A to Z because all of the little pieces that were, you know, randomly cut up would somehow overlap with each other and allow you to go from A to Z with just little pieces. And what, and, and that's exactly how genomes and other things are sequenced. You start with these little pieces and the technology gets better and better all the time where the little pieces are actually pretty long now. And you, you put them all into a computer and align them as best as you can. And eventually it makes this entire contiguous sequence from beginning to end. And so that's how you get a genetic blueprint that you can use as a starting point to decide where do you want to do the edits. So um, I'm assuming any time you do edits, they're always going to be of the encoding variety. And can you kind of elaborate on what For I kind of get it, but what? The encoding versus non-encoding even means? Well, but the encoding versus non-encoding, basically what you're saying is uh, g- parts of DNA or parts of a genome that have information that codes for, 
okay, or has information pertinent to a protein that is, uh, or a structural molecule that does some sort of function in the cell. But I'm, I'm even a little uncomfortable with that. I like to think about, you know, what is gene or genic sequence, which is the, the information, the coding sequence, the blueprint for a given protein or product, um, and its regulatory regions. So the things that turn it on and turn it off or express it in a specific tissue at a specific time or whatever. That's also bounded by what we actually know. And in other words, there's a lot of DNA that we always thought was just kind of throwaway stuff, sequence that didn't matter, but actually turns out to be pretty important in the organization of DNA and in terms of also in terms of long-term regulation of genes. So it allows us to make precise edits in any DNA sequence as long as there's a few little structural features that are pretty common. So it allows us to get in the, as long as we can get in the neighborhood, we can change the lock on the door. I've heard like some people refer to, or some people have speculated that like non-encoding DNA um, is sometimes more about like disease prevention and stuff like that. Like it helps um, uh, like certain organisms to develop antibodies for long lost diseases, but potentially could come back if they weren't there kind of thing. Is that true or I you know I I can't really say much about that. I don't I don't know that there's a whole lot of evidence or support for that kind of hypothesis. Gotcha. Um, genomes are loaded with uh, relics of viruses from um, long ago. Uh, we have uh, plants and animals. The corn is loaded with viral sequences. Gotcha. But these are um, just pieces of DNA that reside in the genome and remind us of uh, times gone by. So I don't know if there's much support to that particular hypothesis. Obviously, I think everybody knows that, you know, you're not sitting in a lab with an exacto knife cutting up DNA. Um, I think CRISPR-Cas9 is what pretty much everybody uses now, but can you kind of explain how that works and what other options are there? Or what did we used to do before CRISPR and why is CRISPR better? Okay, so let's start with that last part. In the olden days, way back like in 2015. <laughs> yeah. I remember it like it was four years ago. <laughs> right. This isn't grandpa's genetic engineering. Right? Um, we used to uh, use transgenics. So what we would do is take a gene of interest, so some sort of DNA sequence and its regulatory region or uh, regulatory sequences that we would install, and we would take this whole cassette, and we put it in the agrobacterium. An agrobacterium is a naturally occurring bacterium that as part of its life cycle transfers DNA from itself to the plant. And scientists have kind of disabled agrobacterium and given it a new set of, like a new mission to transfer what we want. Okay, so we, we put in the payload in the agrobacterium and it puts it into the plant and puts it into a few cells and then we can take those few cells and turn that whole those few cells into a whole new plant. CRISPR Cas9 is different or I should say gene editing. Mm-hmm. Gene editing is the process of adding this thing called CRISPR Cas9 or what's called Cas9. It's an enzyme that you can think of as the scissors. What it does is it goes into the DNA and does a little bit of a cut. And we can talk about where it comes from some other time. But just think of Cas9 as this machine that does a, a cut. Then what we do is we give it a little bit of information of where to do the cut. 
and what we do is we provide it with instructions and that's a little DNA sequence that it grabs onto and it goes along the DNA and compares the sequence it has against the sequence in the DNA and says, okay, not a match, not a match, not a match, not a match. Oh, here it matches. And then it cuts there. And so the idea is, is that you give this very specific piece of DNA kind of a signature that it goes out to find and then it goes and matches it against the DNA and makes that cut so you can put your favorite gene in that sequence and then Cas9 will take that and cut the DNA at that space. So this is, you said it's an enzyme, so this is like a biological process, not a mechanical process like it's it's some sort of living organism that kind of does it based on the information you give it? Well, it's a protein that does it, right? So it's okay. a protein, it's an enzyme, and an enzyme is just a, a protein that does some work. Gotcha. And that protein uh, does that cleavage, that um, what we call an endonucleolytic clave, cleavage. It cuts inside the DNA based upon where you tell it to cut. Okay, so that that's Cas9. There's other types, this thing called talon, which we did an interview um, back with Dan Voidas back maybe episode 103 or 108 or something. But th- he uses something called talon. And talon, which which you got to love the people who name these things, falls right in the hands of the... <laughs> like, what's the scariest bird part we can think of? Okay, uh, talon. Um, but what talon does, T-A-L-E-N, and that has, that again is a, uh, you know, abbreviation for something much more extravagant. Talon is a series of proteins that recognize specific DNA sequence, and they're tethered to an uh, an endonucleolytic activity. Again, the kind of enzyme that cuts DNA. So whereas Cas9 uses a guide guide RNA or a little piece of nucleic acid to match the DNA and decide where to cut, Talon is just proteins that find the sequence and then cut. And both of these are useful techniques. There's a lot of other ones, you know, mega nucleases. There's a whole pile of different ways to do this. But CRISPR kind of stole the spotlight. And uh, Talon is still a really good one, too. So I've I've often heard of gene editing as turning, like, genes on or off. Is this more accurate? Or would it seems like you'd be adding or removing genes, not necessarily turning them on or off. But Well, it turns them off by inactivating them, at the level of the DNA. So there's a couple ways to do that. You can create a lesion in the promoter, what's called the promoter, which is the control region. So you can think of a gene as beads on a string that there's an up there's an upstream region, so to the left of that bead of strings, that regulates how that gene is turned on and off. And you can make mistakes, you know, make errors in the promoter, and that can affect the expression of the gene. But the most potent way to do it is to make a big deletion or, you know, remove one to several bases from the middle of the gene or from the early part of the gene. And then the rest of it is all screwed up because the way in which it's translated into a protein becomes strongly affected. So a well-placed gene edit can completely negate the effect of a gene. And it's very powerful technology that way that really emulates what happens in nature with naturally occurring mutations. I assume you do both, but is is it sometimes you're adding in, like let's say I have three tomatoes and they have three distinct characteristics that are unique to them and I want to make one tomato that has all of those, assuming that they're different parts of the DNA that do that thing. Um, do Do you typically like 
when you edit something, are you editing something that sort of naturally happens in that fruit and just sort of making the best possible fruit or vegetable? Or I know you've talked a couple times about adding something that doesn't normally occur in that vegetable. Like um, I know uh, in one of the very early podcasts you did, you talked about adding, I think, was it keratin to uh, a particular fruit in Africa to help with like vision problems they were having there? Sure. Well, well, that's beta carotene, and okay. that's adding a couple of different enzymes that actually do the metabolism of increase the levels of beta carotene. A little bit different. Gene editing, I, I think you want to think of as, uh, let's go back to your example of three tomatoes. If you have a tomato or any fruit or vegetable that is really good, and let's say this is an outstanding variety except for it um, breaks down post-harvest too fast or it um maybe there's an easier one a better better example it's susceptible to a certain disease and we know that susceptibility to specific fungal diseases is caused by different genes called our genes that have kind of a lock and key mechanism with the fungus and that if the fungus recognizes that receptor can become infective um, resistant plants don't have the right receptor so the fungus can't do its damage. We can edit a specific receptor and knock it out. So now the plant can't recognize the fungus. The fungus can't infect it. So this way you can take something that's almost perfect with that one problem and fix that one problem. The other way in which this is used is by taking something like, and this is really cool stuff. We've done a couple of uh, episodes on this, and I have one coming up with uh, Zach Lipman. So if you go to down to South America and you see wild tomatoes, they don't have fertilizer, the insects don't eat them, they grow just fine everywhere, but they make a really lousy fruit. And scientists have determined that it's just a couple of genetic tweaks that you can make to make that fruit perfect. Right. In our cultivated tomatoes, we've lost all the wild genes that allow it to grow, grow in, in horrible soil and still live and be resistant to everything. So can we make those a couple edits to that wild tomato to give it domestic quality fruit? And that's the other really huge place for gene editing. You kind of hit on something interesting there. That um, So when we say the perfect fruit, for instance, um, it, from a natural selection point i would think the fruits perfect would be i don't want to be tasty i don't want things to want to eat me um but we edited but we want the opposite so it, from a natural selection standpoint it does a fruit typically evolve in such a way that it's not so um like good for us whereas we're sort of trying to push it towards being better for us or well i think it depends upon what the fruits uh, dispersal mechanism, what the seed dispersal mechanism is, right? And so if your goal is to have an animal pick that fruit and carry it away and drop it along the way or pass it through its digestive system, you want something that's appealing to the animal oh, okay. and something that's exciting, right? Yeah. Um, other times you want, uh, maybe you want a fruit to drop right there and not be eaten. And in those cases, those fruits have evolved um, less than desirable flavors and colors and aromas. So it all depends on what that fruit's goal is. Is it to protect the fruit and, you know, drop it right there or is it to put it somewhere else? Um, some are very attractive to birds because you want something to take that fruit and put those seeds, 
you know, 50 miles away and in a nice, rich, fertile bird dropping. And the seed has been scarified by the, or, you know, has been conditioned to germinate by the digestive system. It's all about what your role is as a fruit. What's your goal? Does the EPA consider GMO organic? Well, GMO and gene editing, right? There's the deal there. So GMO cannot be grown in organic systems, and that's not an EPA uh, determination. That was made by the National Organic Standards that said, um, we will not allow a genetically engineered plant in organic systems, which I think is a horrible, horrible missight. And that that was kind of leading me to my reason for asking that question, because like the proper usage of the word, it literally has to be organic for you to edit the genes. If it if it wasn't, you couldn't. So it seems odd. Like th- there has to be genes to edit, so therefore it's organic. Like, or I guess what I'm getting at, like an organic an organism has genes by definition. Let's let's step back for a second. I think when you're talking about what does organic mean, organic right. is a production system. Okay, so organic is is a series of rules that dictate how that crop is produced and it has to do with how seeds are sourced what kind of fertilizer you can use what kind of crop protection strategies you can use and which ones and really what it is more is what is not allowed so you can't use synthetic fertilizers you can't use you can't use um synthetic insecticides or fungicides except in some cases um you can't use uh, herbicides uh, synthetic herbicides the difference is is that that's a production system and a lot of people get really upset with me because i'm not so harsh on on it i i i'm all for organic research and i love people who do organic gardening i love that farmers can make money off of consumers who are willing to pay more um you know hey about time farmers made money on stuff so the difference there is that the genetics is completely different if it's a transgenic where you're adding a gene or where you're editing a gene you're um, doing something very precise, but that's not allowed in organic cultivation. If you put it that those seeds in a nuclear reactor and you break the DNA in that same spot and make it resistant to disease, that is allowed in um, organic, even if there are a million other gene er- errors that have been brought in by that placement in the nuclear reactor. Um, it's a very hypocritical system. Well, and that's that's kind of why I was asking that question. So it was interesting when when you were talking about the definition of organic, you were sort of you were talking about like what the EPA allows people to label as organic, right? Well, I don't know that it's EPA. It's um, it's the USDA has or, or yeah. FDA maybe. Well, are you, well, USDA um, really oversees the um, National Organic Program, and the National Organic Program right. has oversight into what is allowed and not allowed. To be labeled as organic or USDA. Right. Certain. Well, the reason I was asking it is I was more talking about the scientific definition of organic, and oh. the reason I <laughs> the reason I care about this is because I don't like if I think about the USDA or the FDA or even the EPA, even that's not applicable here. Those are that kind of goes back to my point about a lot of people in government aren't scientists, and and sometimes they make what I would consider bad decisions because they don't know much about science and. So I think when they decided to use the word organic outside of its already understood scientific meaning that it's a carbon-based, right? It, it basically organic just means it's a carbon-based um, product, right? Well, organic, when you're talking about organic in a scientific 
sense, you're talking about organic chemistry. And organic chemistry is kind of the central lifeblood of, uh, literally, of all organisms. And any carbon-based molecule, with the exception of carbon dioxide, is considered an organic molecule. So your sugars, your proteins, your DNA, they call those organic molecules because they're made with uh, carbon as a a backbone, uh, or as a central part of a backbone. Organic production and organic crop protection, that all comes from a little bit different of a cultural meaning. Um, It's a term that really came from uh, not chemistry, but just from the dictionary meaning um, based on fundamental parts. So when you say, or, gotcha. you know, this was an organic idea, you know, it came from, you know, the, it, it came from two people sitting over a bottle of wine and a sketch pad. You know, it was an organic idea. And I think that's where the basis of organic oh, okay. farming and cultivation where really got its traction. It just, I think the thing that bothered me, and maybe it doesn't bother you as much for others, but it, it just seemed like it was sort of a, a hijacking of that word for a different purpose. And, and then what it did was, it, by saying that, say, GMOs are not organic, which by a scientific definition they absolutely have to be, that you're you're misleading people into believing they're um, they're not like like an organic tomato isn't a tomato. It's something like a tomato, or I'm sorry, a, a gene edited tomato isn't a, a regular tomato like an organic tomato. When that's not really true, you've just you've taken the the tomato and you've made it an ideal tomato but there's nothing if if i put two tomatoes in front of you one gmo and one organic and said you know is this one natural and this one not natural you wouldn't know unless somebody told you or you knew this sequence of the particular tomato you were looking for right no that's a really good point i never thought about that is that by saying that it's organic implies that the other one is completely synthetic and (laughs) and not made of biological matter and, and there's people right. who've made that claim. Um, Moms Against America, or Mom, <laughs> Moms Across America, which, <laughs> yeah. which, you know, they're Freudian yeah. slip. Um, that's, that's a different group altogether. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but they, they actually showed in that, uh, if you look up stunning corn comparison and all my analysis on that, they actually showed um, that corn that came from a genetically engineered background had, like, no carbon. <laughs> It was, except for it was loaded with glyphosate and formaldehyde that are, you know, it was, you know, it was mountains of glyphosate and uh, formaldehyde, which are carbon-based molecules, but there was no carbon in it. It was fudged numbers that they made up, but the idea was to make it look like something completely alien and something that certainly was not um, organic chemistry. Yeah, and, you know, I'm not, um, like, I don't know how much you know about the idea of libertarianism. Some of us are... It, like total anarchist, which is not me. I, I definitely believe in a role of government. And I don't mind the government like giving people information or making sure people have information in this particular case. Like just to me, I would have rather they said, you know, if you're going to edit the gene and, and people want to know this for whatever reason, I don't, to me, I don't, I don't care because I, I feel pretty comfortable what you guys do is safe. But if people really want to know this, then just label it gene edited, but don't, don't give it some moniker that says it isn't organic when by science's definition it is it just to me it 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 makes people scared of something that they shouldn't be scared of yeah but the, the there's so many rules on the books about this already and if something is um 
made, whether it's a you know any kind of product that's in a box that we're selling in the store, if there is some sort of hazard or some sort of risk, like made on products that made on equipment that may have processed wheat or made in a factory that might have peanut dust, that must be on a label. Gene editing poses no special risk. And the product in that box is no different than something that could have happened through natural mutation. So if you look at what the FDA's role in this is, it's to certify that the food is safe. It's not to talk about how it was made or who handled it or where it came from, that kind of thing. These are rules that talk about the the quality of what's in the package. And so... That's actually a great point because they... They really only need to explain what's in it for p- people like having allergies or something like that. Um, and I agree with that, but I, that actually makes perfect sense. Yeah, well, but if it did, if gene editing caused a special risk, then absolutely label it. And But don't just right. say gene edited. Say that right. this product contains a variation of the... Um, uh, I forget the name of the proteins that are mutated in peanuts that cause problems. But... What, it contains a variant of this particular seed storage protein that uh, could cause allergies in some part of the population. That's good information. The fact that it was right. gene edited doesn't matter because the outcome is the same whether you gene edit it, whether it's done by transgenic or whether it's done by natural breeding. So, Right, yeah, nature could have made the exact same product. That's right. Just by protein. No, that's exactly right. So that's good information. How you did it doesn't matter. It's like, um, you know, uh, it's like going on vacation. You know, you can drive to Las Vegas or you can fly to Las Vegas. Either way, you're in Las Vegas. It doesn't matter how you got there, you know, and, 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 uh, and so that's kind of the idea. The technology we use to create the changes is the journey. The destination is exactly the same. Yeah, you know, one I I had written about GMOs a couple of years ago, um, and just based on a lot of what I've learned from you and stuff like that. And the one thing I always try and point out to people is like, you know, we've been editing genes for thousands of years through cross pollination and stuff like that. But you know, when you do that, you know, you might have trait A, B, and C in three different fruits, and you're hoping to get one fruit that has A, B, and C, like our tomato that we've been talking about the whole time. But when you would try and let nature do it through cross-pollination, who knows what you're going to get. Um, whereas now with gene editing, you get exactly what you tried to make like because you did it very precisely. And it's funny that people are bothered by that when it's like you're okay with accidents, but you're not okay with being precise. Like it just doesn't make sense to me. You hit the nail on the head. You know, and, and if the more you learn about biology and the way that genes move, that when you cross two things together, say you want to take two plants, one that has really good disease resistance and another one that has very good flavors, and get all of those genes in one place, you don't just move that one gene by breeding. You move the whole genetic neighborhood. And you could be moving a toxin or something that's um, an allergen or what. In traditional breeding, we do it all the time and nobody cares. But if you adjust that one gene in a very precise way with that one single change that you can verify, um, people get upset. It's it's a really, really interesting um, psychology there. Yeah, it's like 
it's it's very ironic. Like we, we you do something that you might or might not get what you intend, and the FDA doesn't care. Good luck. But as soon as you do it precisely, uh oh, we want to make sure you've done that right. <laughs> and the the other part that always kind of bothered me was there seems to be a little bit of irony between the people who are afraid of GMOs and the people who are supporting all organic because the whole, to me, the concept of the organic foods thing initially was more about, I want to know that there isn't some harmful pesticide, like man-made pesticide added to this product, which is precisely what GMOs often are designed to to prevent. You don't have to add all those other chemicals. So it's it's odd that the people who are sort of afraid of all the chemicals or anti-GMO, they, in theory, they should be for it because GMO foods use way less pesticides and man-made, you know, chemicals that they're afraid of. And yet they still seem to be largely against GMO too. That's an excellent point. And this is the question is that if you're going to farm, you have to have a way of controlling pests and pathogens. So weeds, fungi, insects, right? And you can do that in a couple of ways. You can either use uh, production techniques and organic production techniques do some things very well. Intercropping, using trap plants, using cover crops to put fertilizer in, or put elements in the soil that can use, be used as nutrients. There's a lot of cool tricks that we learn from organic cultivation, and I do it in my house you know, all the time because I find it's a really useful way to least condition soil prior to planting. But aside from using those kinds of strategies, you can use genetics. And let's say you can find a natural source of disease resistance for a given plant or insect resistance or nematode resistance, which is huge. Can you um, breed those into one genetic background and have a plant that has um, all those fortifications? Well, yeah, you can do it, but it takes years. If you're doing it with something like uh, citrus, it might take 100 years. But here we can do it with genetic engineering and gene editing inside five years. Right. Yeah, so that's so this is what drives me nuts is that here you have a way to complement organic production, which is a perfectly fine idea, with the best possible genetics. But it's this weird fear of of uh, corporations that make the folks who are in charge of the standards to say absolutely not no genetic engineering even gene editing is out that's the thing that drives me nuts like if if a company makes something that kills people it usually runs them out of business i mean it, it's not we have you know we have a great free press in this country who does a pretty good job of reporting that kind of stuff on most occasions so i, I you know people have this weird inherent fear um, but Obviously, the money is to be made in making a great product, not a dangerous one. Oh, that's true. But look at glyphosate. Here's a case where you make mm-hmm. a very good product that is very, very low toxicity by any single measure that has ever been done in independently verified research. Yet this was so effectively vilified that this compound, even though it's perfectly safe from anything right. that you can read in the literature, has led to massive lawsuits, has led to... Um, the potential of uh, different countries and different uh, uh, provinces in Canada, different uh, even reevaluation in our country as to whether or not this will be continued as a, as something, an option for farmers. And so based on almost zero data, the best tool for the environment, the best tool for farmers, uh, sustainability all the way around is going to be lost. 
I hope not, but that's something that is um, yeah. increasingly realistic. And it seems like the FDA's obviously on board. They've because I know I've seen you know them basically coming out and saying there's no inherent danger with it. Um, so you would think that the lawmakers would listen to their own people. Yeah, but the you know yeah. it's it's the FDA and well let's just put it this way these compounds are reevaluated every so many years and it might be 10 years or 15 years i think it's 15 in the us where the regulators go back fda and epa and look at the current state of the literature and they make determinations since 1971 every 15 years or whatever it is and say okay reevaluated it's good uh, the eu does the same thing canada does the same thing Canada came out in 2017 and said, this stuff's fantastic. Let's not do anything. It's uh, a constant reevaluation for safety. And I think if Rachel Carson was alive today, she would be rather appalled at how uh, activists have really vilified a very good strategy that keeps um, much more toxic chemicals um, off the farm and out of the environment. Yeah. And, and you know, and I don't know a ton about glyphosate. If I if I understand it right, it it prevents photosynthesis. So the way it works to kill weeds and so forth is if if it prevents them from photosynthesizing, they naturally die. But then they engineer their crop to be resistant to glyphosate, so it doesn't happen to their crop. Is that you're uh, you're getting, right? getting there? So um, it's a little bit more intricate than interrupting photosynthesis directly. I think that's an indirect effect. What it does is it blocks um, protein synthesis by by blocking the production of an amino acid. So proteins, which are, you know, the the structural elements of cells and the enzymes in cells, they're made up of amino acids, right? And so Mm -hmm. this, there's certain amino acids that are made in different ways. And there's a series of um, uh, aromatic amino (laughs) <laughs> aromatic amino acids, easy for you to say, uh, tyrosine, right. phenylalanine, and uh, um, uh, tryptophan, different amino acids that are made through what's called the shikimate pathway. And shikimate pathway makes uh, the precursors to make these sets of needed amino acids. If you block that pathway, you can't make those amino acids and you can't make certain proteins. Okay, so Glyphosate blocks this pathway. So you can imagine substance A gets converted to substance B, and that's then made into aromatic amino acids that are needed. Glyphosate blocks that conversion. Now there's, if you, because it interferes with an enzyme that makes A to B, A to B, the enzyme that does that is inhibited by glyphosate. The resistant plants, uh, are, have a version of that same enzyme. It does the same job, only it, it doesn't care about glyphosate. So those plants survive just fine. It's kind of like going, uh, you know, out to your, like I worked on my truck all day today. It's like, um, you know, unscrewing your Napa Gold oil filter and replacing it with a Mopar oil filter. It's changing one for another. It does exactly the same job, just more or less efficiently. And uh, you're not changing anything else about the plant. You're just giving it a different tool that now is not inhibited by the herbicide. So that's the um, that's how it works. And it doesn't necessarily inhibit photosynthesis. It inhibits anything to do with growth and development. But photosynthesis um, 
has a rapid turnover of specific proteins. There's parts of the photosynthetic machinery that need to be replenished, uh, for lack of a better term. And um, and the shikimate pathway helps to serve, uh, provide those amino acids and that those proteins for photosynthetic application. So that's glyphosate in a nutshell. Um, so obviously I know a lot of people tend to think that GMOs are typically for increasing crop yields, but I know a lot of times, like you talked about, it's more, it's also about pest resistance and fung, fungi resistance and stuff of that nature. Um, you know, are there, can, is like most of it a, around one thing or is it kind of all over the map there or what other interesting things are you trying to do when you're editing a gene? Well, right now it's really a thin, thin, narrow section of traits and yields if yields go up it's simply because the plants are a little healthier and a little bit happier there's only two traits that have gone in the major agronomic crops and it's resistance to glyphosate so it's herbicide tolerance and insect resistance so plants that make their own protection against very specific insects which is great because now you don't need to spray them the plant defends itself and uh, that's fantastic. And that is cut insecticide sprays massively, uh, depending on the crop. Uh, the, so it's really just two traits. We haven't done much at all. And in a way, the promises of the technology have really, really gone unfulfilled. We talked about um, BT and the insect, which is the insect resistance trait. I remember right. talking about that in class in 1981. And how it would be in broccoli and how it would be in cauliflower and how it would be, um, but never happened. And it's strictly because of the really intense regulatory um, uh, atmosphere. Do you, um, you know, I know this isn't necessarily your ex- area of expertise because it's medicine, but I remember for whatever reason, I, I don't know why, I, I remember watching the news about them mapping the human genome. And um, the people at the time said, you know, 10, 20 years from now, this is going to revolutionize medicine. And, you know, we're seeing it now with genomic treatments, like for cancers and stuff like that. Um, and I, it, I'm assuming that to some extent they're using similar techniques and that they're trying to edit genes to make a, a match. Um, but, you know, obviously I think mapping the genome period and learning how to use it is going to be a way for, I think, humankind to sort of sustain our, our needs for food and stuff like that. Well, there's two different elements to what you just said, though, is that if you know your genome sequence, you now know your propensity to develop specific diseases, and you also know um, the treatments that may or may not work better for you. And this hasn't really been pushed into application just yet. Um, if you have specific kinds of cancers or have specific kinds of problems, they may test you to determine what the best course of action is. And they know, like, you know, metastatic breast cancer, they know that there are specific types of breast cancers that respond uh, more favorably to specific kinds of treatments based upon the, the gene sequences that are there. So you frequently um, will see the BRCA genes, BRCA, uh, the HER genes, HER. There's a series of genes which, depending upon the variant you have, uh, predisposes or um, maybe protects you from breast cancer, but then also the treatment regimen 
varies. And so this is where human sequencing, or by understanding your particular genome sequence, genomic medicine, is extremely relevant. Your sensitivity to be able to use Coumarin as a, as a potential therapy varies. Um, on a whole different level, like I know my um, potential problems, I've had my genome sequenced, and I can go through and look at the SNPs, the single nucleotide polymorphisms. It's just a way of saying the little variants in DNA that tend to be associated with specific diseases. And I know that in my family, we have uh, um, obesity, high propensity for obesity, and uh, alcohol abuse. And these are things that, you know, I mean, I can certainly understand that. You know, I mean, I can see those kinds of patterns. And um, those are things to watch out for. In terms of other diseases, I'm pretty lucky to get a good bill of health. But I think yeah. that if somebody told me that I had a higher than likely um, likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease, I may change the way that I uh do certain things. I don't know what you would do, but th the things that they talk about, like learning musical instruments or learning foreign language or exercising the brain in specific ways, at least may help or be more sensitive to the symptoms of something that would be consistent with early onset. So those are, those are why this kind of uh, thing is really important. The editing hasn't taken a hold in, in humans much yet, but they can tell you within 10 years you will have cures for cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia, um, and there have been some children who are alive today because of gene-edited white blood cell therapies. And uh, that's a whole other thing we can talk about another time, but, but it, it is something that's happening. So um, I think about the story of the Irish potato famine, which was largely blamed on a lack of biodiversity. So are there risks of that with GM crops to like, you know, a mass extinction of them? Like if, if say, you know, particular Monsanto or somebody is making a particular seed over and over again, it's the same DNA. Does it have that um, sensitivity that would happen to the, you know, the, like a complete loss of a, if something came in and, yeah. No, sure. You're, 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 that's true, but it's becoming less of a issue as time goes on. And what this relates to, it, it really doesn't have much to do with the gen genetic engineering event. What it has to do mm -hmm. is the foundational hybrid. What is the nature of the plant that was used as the foundational plant that you put the cherry on the Sunday? right? You made this last little edit or a series of edits that made this thing that was already really good. Um, better. And so the problem is, is that in most of our crop plants, that original hybrid, the genetics are very narrow. And it's not so much like corn and soy, like people say. I think about things like uh, grapes or apples or citrus or potatoes. That's some narrow germplasm, or, which is a way of saying there's no genetic diversity. Most potato farmers are growing the Burbank russet. You know, which came from the late 1800s, and over you know hundreds of hundreds of thousands of acres. So, um, the biggest problem with gene diversity is in our foundational hybrids, and I think that's getting better now that we can use more computationally enabled selection techniques. We're able to come up with new varieties that actually are opening that genetic bottleneck quite a bit. So, if we think about Genetic mutation, obviously, it happens to all life forms. So I'm assuming it's going to happen to GM crops too, right? Like, are they 
if you engineer in a particular trait, is it more likely to mutate away because it wasn't there in the first place or wasn't normally there? Or is it pretty much just like any other genetic trait? Well, it's an interesting point because if you, uh, as a scientist, I would say there is a potential for that because many of the elements that we used to use as the key building blocks of a genetic um, engineered cassette, so the part that we'd put in, um, the plant does recognize them as problematic and turns them off. Um, that does happen. And that's because we used to use uh, sequences from viruses and things that were at a very high expression level because you wanted the level to be expressed at a high level or you wanted the plant to express that new gene at a high level. And um, we see some evidence that a plant recognizes it and turns it off. It says, hey, this isn't right. This doesn't belong here. Um, in other cases, I think we're getting better at using other tools in the toolbox to ensure a good quality, even expression of genes that we install. So I'm assuming that that whole process of that mutation, since it sort of happens normally, and like a gene-edited crop mutates just like a normal crop, I'm assuming that's why like Monsanto, for instance, wanted people not to use their second generation seeds because they would have some mutations and they may potentially wouldn't be nearly as effective for what they were designed for. Well, so I think that's not quite it. So mutations are relatively rare and most mutations when they happen are neutral. You don't see an effect of them one way or the other because they don't hit coding sequence of DNA. And if they do, it's a one third chance they'll have almost no effect. Long story there. We can get into that, but plus, you know, when a, when a mutation happens, when there's an error in a plant it's or animal, it usually goes away because cells are very good at identifying those mutations and fixing them. And, oh. and that's why things like cancers are so relatively rare and late onset is because it usually takes a few different mutations, like especially like something like colon cancer, has five different steps that it needs to take genetically before it becomes metastatic, or problematic, I should say. And um, metastatic and, uh, and angiogenic and all that stuff, so going back to cancer biology. Mutations happen all the time. Well, you're talking about how you have something that the seed company makes that if you try to move it to the next generation, those are hybrids. And what it means is that you take one plant that's got really uniform genetics and you cross it with another plant that has really different uniform genetics. And if you look at these corn inbreds, they're absolutely weird. They're tiny. They make a little tiny cob. They're not useful for anything. But when you cross them together... They make this magical, huge, robust, strong, healthy, productive corn. And so the corn companies have those you know, male and female plants. They mix them together. They make the hybrid. Now if you take that hybrid and you let it self-pollinate, you'll have some that look like one lousy parent, some that look like the other lousy parent, and some that maybe look like the hybrid and the whole spectrum in between. So to a farmer that wants to grow corn and have the highest profit, you'll buy hybrid seed every year because every plant is genetically identical. And they're going to give you the assurance of high high quality seed. And if you save that seed, you're going to get literally a mixed bag of results. So I know um, like in humans, for instance, you know, we have skin cells that die off and get replaced with new cells. And so even 
like sometimes I think we think about mutation as from the child to the parent. Um, there's a there's an alteration in DNA, but obviously we as people or animals in general, we make replicating cells that potentially mutate, which potentially is cancer. Do plants have that? Like I've never heard of plants having cancer, but do they have an entirely different mechanism? Do they regenerate like that, or are they mostly just? No, it's it's a really interesting question that goes back to the fundamental differences between plants and animals, is that uh, animal cells have mutations that may occur in a terminally differentiated cell. So you start out as a blob of cells, actually start out as one, and then you make two, and then a dozen, and then next thing you know, you're a you know, a circle blob, like a sphere of cells. And then mm-hmm. you begin to differentiate into different cell types, some that will do the role of epithelial cells and line uh, your digestive system and your skin, and others that will differentiate into brain cells, and others that will differentiate into muscle cells, heart, you know, all that good stuff. That terminally differentiated cell is now turning off all of these genes that were important in early development about rapid division and grow fast. All that stuff is tightly suppressed. Now, let's say you go into a given cell and you remove that repressor from mutation. And probably the best case is the P53 gene from retinoblastoma. It's a gene called P53. Um, This is an interesting, great story. Um, We'll cover someday on the podcast. But this is a tumor suppression gene. So this gene, its job is to turn off unbridled growth. And when you mutate it, now cells divide much more differently and much more robustly. Um, So going back to the question, you know, plants, they don't really have the same type of tumor suppression because plant cells are always uh, figuring out where they are in space relative to their neighbors. They know where they are in a gradient of hormones that are coming from the top of the plant and the bottom of the plant and from other cells and other developmental contexts. So plants don't really develop tumors per se or what they would call unbridled growths and cancers. They uh, tend to differentiate into new organs or to senesce and just die off. So plants do things a little bit differently. When So when cells do mutate, is it... Normally, like, like I know, obviously, the genes are a series of base pairs or whatever. Is it that, like, the A doesn't get a match to a T or C doesn't get a match to the G and it just kind of has a, a, a uncompleted strand of DNA? Or is it that the actual structure gets entirely switched from a an AT to a TA? No, no, all the above. I mean, there's a mutation okay. is a change, right? And so you can go back to different types of... Um, diseases that have a genetic basis, like Huntington's disease is a very interesting example where you have expansion of little repeated units of nucleotides. So like if you have the letters like CCG or CCG, and maybe it'll be an island where it goes four times, CCG, 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 and it starts to build that bigger. And those islands expand. And it does this and actually is the basis of some diseases like Huntington's. Um, Others are based on single mutations like uh, sickle cell anemia or, as I mentioned before, cystic fibrosis. This is a single change in DNA that now inactivates some critical part of a normal role in in a cell whether it's a protein that maintains the shape of a blood cell, as in sickle cell disease, 
or cells or uh, mutations that change the way cells uh, secrete um, enzymes that are required for digestion of bacterial DNA, as in the case of cystic fibrosis. Um, these are all just little, one little base is all the difference. And what's really interesting about things like sickle cell anemia is that that single base pair change, even though it causes a disease, confers some level of resistance to malaria. So this is how these mutations naturally became fixed in certain populations. When, um, so we talked a little bit about like the FDA testing or whatever. Can you kind of elaborate on like when you, let's say, you know, you decide to open Kevin Fulta Enterprises and the first thing you launch is our tomato that we've been talking about. And it's, you know, special, like how do they determine what it's supposed to be? Like, do you have a, basically we are trying to make this and then you provide a finished product and they look at its DNA and say, okay, it is that, or what, what is involved in their testing? Do you know? Yeah. It used to be a little bit more like that, but now what it is is you have a consultation period with the EPA, the FDA and the USDA. So the FDA to, is it safe to eat? The EPA is, is it safe for the environment? And the USDA is, is it compatible with cultivation systems and isn't invasive and all that good stuff? And these are regulatory bodies that go in sequence, one after the other. And with the FDA, you go, you don't just show up with a product and say, here it is, you know, let's see if it's safe. You go to the FDA and say, what do we need to show you to satisfy the requirement of uh, demonstrating substantial equivalence that this product is the same as the non-genetically engineered uh, uh, analog with the exception of this change in the gene. And the FDA will give, here's the experiments we need. Oh, okay. And you go do those experiments, you come back with the data, and they go, it's either good enough or not good enough. And what commonly happens is you come back to the FDA and say, okay, we checked the 41 boxes you wanted us to check. And then the FDA says, well, we really want you to do this one. Uh, do this experiment over here. Well, this result looks a little bit on the border, so we need you to repeat this again. And so this is kind of a, a moving goalpost, but it's then that's the beauty of this that no one appreciates is that every trait, every product is custom tested and with very strong FDA oversight. And that's why the only things that have been approved have been corn, soybeans, canola, and... Um, sugar beets for human consumption, well, some papaya and, you know, apple and that thing, but a little bit of acreage. The main crops are all these big egg crops because you can't afford the time and energy and expense to do the tests on something that's a small market. The one, like, I always think about rational fears in science, and one of the most common is, like, nuclear energy. And you think about... Um, uh, with nuclear energy, oddly enough, I was very surprised when I researched this. There's a, a statistic that's death per kilowatt hour, and they're actually measuring how many people died bringing that particular bit of energy to market. Um, and one of the lowest is actually nuclear energy. It's it's similar to like an airplane where people are afraid to fly, even though statistically it's way safer than driving. And I think it's always about okay, maybe statistically it's safer, but if it goes wrong, it could go really wrong. And and it did in Chernobyl. But um, with with the fear of GMOs, I, 
I don't know. Is there a scenario where something went wrong, like that would make people afraid? I mean, I understand sometimes people are just afraid of the unknown, but I've never heard of any sort of thing that went wrong with them. Yeah, I think that the the likelihood of something going wrong with the level of rigorous testing that's out there is extremely low. Plus, you know, if you if in if people want to say it's all done by these greedy bastard corporations, um, if these companies are indeed the greedy money grubbing bastards that they say they are, um, they're going to want to make sure that they're not affecting the people that they're are using the product. So the companies are selling the farmers. So it better perform great in the field and it better be something that consumers appreciate. Right. And something that isn't, you know, and I, that's what I never understand. It's like the worst business model in the world is killing your customer. Right. And so, um, I, I do think that, uh, it's mostly that these kind of, based on ignorance. It's not, there's no incident that, Anybody has to point no. to. Yeah. There's nothing to point to, but you know, the, the the I think that if you make me put on my philosopher hat, and I say, well, our ability to create technology is always greater than our wisdom to use it properly. Right. And I think that's the case with you know when you look at nuclear. I mean, we we do a really good job with nuclear power, and right. and I wish we were all nuclear power. Yeah, me too. Um, we use it on battleships, and we use it on space stations, and we use it. Uh, in so many contexts, and the sun is a nuclear reactor. You know, I mean, we we can harness this kind of power to do very good things. The problem is, is that the we also make bombs, right. and you also have suitcases full of uranium that are missing from Tehran. You know, who knows? And but this is why people look at these kind of what they call tail risk or these black swan events. Right. Um, they 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 fixate on those. And yes, with genetic engineering, you could make a virus. You could take the chickenpox virus or the herpes virus or the polio virus and, um, and arm it with an antibody that will attack human myelin. And anyone who's infect- infected would be paralyzed. Um, you could do this as make, create biological weapons around genetic engineering. And so it's those kinds of insidious uses that some people weigh extremely heavily. Um, to me, I think about the um, tremendously weak children I've seen, in even in places like China, um, Uganda, uh, where these children could benefit from this technology in a huge way with better food. Right. And uh, so I put my faith in our higher angels and say, damn it, let's engineer everything we possibly can to do the most good we can. And if we can saturate the world with good use of technology, maybe people will be less inclined to run into that bus with a suitcase bomb of nuclear power. Has there um, ever been a, like, I, I can't even think of ever hearing of a time where somebody, but like, obviously we've made nuclear bombs. We've used nuclear energy for potentially bad purposes. Um, has anybody ever used biotech for something like that? Or There has been. Yeah, there's some sort of, um, and I don't know. remember where I heard this or what the sources of this is, so you know, take this with a grain of salt. Fair enough. But this goes back a ways, too. I remember hearing this way back that the Soviet Union back in the day had engineered the smallpox virus with the uh, demyelinating enzyme or with an uh, antibody that attacked myelin. So any infected population would be 
rapidly paralyzed. Um, you know, that's that's a pretty insidious use of technology. Right. Um, so I'll I'll end my line of questions with an easy one. Is there a favorite edit you've seen, whether it's something you did or some you saw somebody else do that you just thought, wow, that was a really amazing use of biotech, like something that you would cite before any other? Yeah, I think the one that makes me happy is how they – so there are certain leukemias that now can be treated with what are called um, – CAR T or T CAR cells. It's CAR T, CAR T. I get it always backwards. But basically, what you do is you give the white blood cell these natural killer T cells. You give them a instructions to seek and destroy a leukemia cell, which has a specific white blood cell that has it's malignant, but now it has a specific cell surface marker that says it's a leukemia cell. You can program the body's natural defense cells to go and attack it and it works like a charm the problem is that if you take my white blood cells and you engineer them genetically and you pump them into a child who has leukemia the child will undergo rejection because they're my blood cells i got my fingerprints all over them which you know which that child's body may or may not be able to handle and so these kinds of therapies, even though they're really cool, have that limitation. Gene editing was used to remove all of the signatures that classify that incoming cell as as, as foreign. So now you can create a, a body of these cells that are ready to attack leukemia that have no surface antigens. There's no rejection. And you edit just by editing out those proteins that give a cell its signature. And now these cells can be used generically in any infected child or any infected person to attack that leukemia. And there are kids alive today because of it. That is an awesome this, Yes, this is the technology. And this is what will revolutionize um, medicine and agriculture in the next 10 years. Do you guys work, it, work at all with like the medical community? Like... Um, you know, like your expertise in editing a gene or whatever, does that sometimes transfer over to something they're trying to do in medicine? Well, sure. It's the same technology. You know, it's the same nuts and bolts. But the the way that I learn anything about it is just by reading the news. You can go on Google Scholar, Google, not even go on Google Scholar. You can go on Google News and right. type in Cas9 or type in gene editing. And you'll get 35 stories from this week about mice are no longer deaf when you, you know, deaf mice can be made undeaf, that you can correct a, uh, uh, an analogous disease to sickle cell anemia in another organism or correct cystic fibrosis or correct a rare genetic disorder. This is hot and it's real and it's now and it's something that is so exciting to read. Yeah, there's definitely a part of me that feels like, um, like I'm witnessing a radical change in the way, you know, we can affect life around us, like in a great way, you know, like being able to prevent diseases or being able to grow better foods. I, I think about, you know, kind of what you talked about a little bit. I remember, you know, the, the, we are the world song member and, and all those people who were starving. And I always thought, you know, man, if they could just make a food that grew there, that would be great. And that's sort of precisely what we're doing now you know instead of having to fly in food and hope it makes it and hope it doesn't get stolen by other people or something like that we're just making stuff that can grow there 
Well, but that's a lot of that is it really goes to the huge advances in tr- in traditional breeding, the tremendous philanthropy from different organizations, the world not not saying World Health Organization, but the world uh, food organizations that have been boots on the ground in helping to teach cultivation techniques and bring the modern technologies. And that might be GMO, it might not. And in many parts of the world, they're still not able to access those seeds, but they can get elite hybrids and they can get advanced chemistries to help combat them and they can learn other techniques. So it's um, worldwide poverty, abject poverty is at an all-time low in terms of percentage of population. Uh, We got a long way to go. Uh, One out of six people goes to bed without fresh water. Several out of six go to bed hungry. And I think we got a long way to go in that our um, acceptance of gene editing and our teaching of gene editing will help not only provide food to keep people healthier, it also will maybe be able to help the diseases that get them at the end. So this is something I, I, I sit and think about how I used to own Amazon stock at like $7 a share back in the 90s. And if I would have kept it where I would be today, yeah. um, <laughs> it would have been retired. Yeah. But, you know, I think that gene editing is really the same thing poised for explosion that the internet retail was back then. I think that right now a number of fledgling companies are already coming out with aggressive pipelines in agriculture and in medicine. And I think these folks will really drive the innovation in the next uh, decade if we let it happen. And the EU isn't going to allow it. New Zealand isn't going to allow it. The National Organic Standards won't allow it. So cross your fingers for sane libertarian uh, <laughs> Um, uh, policy that really looks at the evidence more than the politics. Yeah, I hate to say it. I, unfortunately, a lot of my libertarians aren't scientists, and they're more in the organic camp, um, which sometimes can be embarrassing. But you know, we're all different. I, I think, um, it, you know, in this, and as you kind of hit on there, it goes back to you have politicians who are making decisions based on um, you know what they're. Uh, populist wants, you know, or in not making a decision based on what the science has told them. Um, and it, you know, I think about what you do obviously is education to some extent for all of us when we're listening. I mean, some people might listen to it just because they find it interesting or whatever, but still, hopefully they've walked away and learned something from each one of your podcasts and others like yours. Um, and, you know, I always think to myself, you know, like Kevin's a busy guy. He's got science to do. So when I do my my writings and stuff like that, to me, to some extent, I'm trying to pick up the mantle a little bit and reach out to people who otherwise might not listen to your podcast or might not listen to science podcasts in general or take in science information in general and say, hey, look, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of this science. And, you know, try and debunk some of the the nonsense out there because there's a lot of it. And, you know, I'm like, if I can understand it a little bit, that helps me to do what I think is my job is to help debunk that to people who otherwise might not follow it um, and maybe take some of that burden off of people like yourself who have better things to do potentially. Well, but that's been the big change in the last five years is that there was a time that it was me and a few others who were getting out in front of this and taking the heat and uh, doing a lot of the education. 
nowadays there are so many podcasts and so many good websites, much better writers than me and people with much better voices than me. <laughs> and and I love that because I've actually watched our podcast numbers go down every week. And I don't think that it's because we have a lousy product. I think it's because there's more content out there that is equally, if not more compelling. And that's not hard to do. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm a scientist. I'm not a broadcaster. I have no journalism background. Right. So when, when you get these really slick podcasts, and I listen to them like Science Versus, yeah, um, I love it. Yeah. Oh, she was wonderful, but 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 she and her team of twenty people, right? Because <laughs> at the end they do the the science versus what's brought to you by this. I had this, you know, we had these sponsors, and so and so did the did the advertising, and so and so did the production, and so and so did this. And I sit and think, if I had a production team, this would be a little different. Right. But it's me usually at four o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning with a headache uh, in front of a computer trying to squeeze this thing out by, you know, seven o'clock. You know, I got a million other things going on. I get, you know, we're busy in a lot of different fronts personally and professionally, but this is a priority. But um, gosh, I wish I had some of the resources that those folks do. But at the same time, if they, if just seeing that flow of resources into providing scientific content makes my heart warm because somebody is putting out something that is connecting with the masses and seeing my numbers go down doesn't mean that they're going from me to, to keeping up with the Kardashians. It means they're going from me to science versus or me to skeptics guide in the universe or me to naked scientists or whatever. Um, That's a good feeling. Yeah, there, there, there are some really good science podcasts out there that are, um, you know, understandable to people like me. Um, yours, sadly, sometimes does go over my head, and I'm like, oh boy, I don't know what he meant there. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the more I listen to it, the more I hear recurring themes. I'm like, oh, okay, I kind of get that now. You know, sometimes um, just hearing it presented in multiple different ways, or you know, hearing the same story from multiple different people and the way they might present it, eventually it starts to come together. But but you're right. I, it, the more, the more we have those kind of people out there, you know, presenting it in a way that everybody can understand, or at least most people can understand. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, this fear, fear of science just doesn't make sense to me. I, I there's a lot of things to fear in this world. I, I just don't feel like science is one of them. People can use science for bad things, and you should fear those people. But to me, you should never fear science itself. Well, this is where I'm going next. I'm, I'm kind of thinking about putting a cap on the podcast series somewhere around 200. We're at 106. This one will be 162. And I have another idea that's going to be going on. I'm doing a lot of video right now, which is good. And I'm doing more every day. Um, I'll post a YouTube video later of how to change out a windshield wiper pump on a 2005 <laughs> Nissan Titan. Um, but that, but that's not science. Yeah. Um, I, but I am exploring more of video and video editing. The, big thing that I'm working on, I have a concept of going after the charlatans directly, going after the bogus garbage that we see on Netflix. And I have the idea of um, something that I'm going to be doing called Science Pause Button. And what it will be is that you watch the video on TV and you listen to the podcast and you have your finger on the pause button. And every time they tell you some bullshit, I'll say pause. (laughs) And then I'll explain what it is. And I want to do a science pause button 
uh, podcast, or maybe that's what bi- talking biotech will become. Um, to do it with podcasts that are uh, appealing to audiences that are being lied to, and I heard yeah. one earlier today on glyphosate that was, they were talking all about Roundup Ready wheat, which never existed. Um, at least commercially, I want to start to directly go after the people who are lying to others. Yeah, why not? They're doing it to you. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> well so, you know, I, I know. They, I, I've taken enough heat for it for a long time. Right. But I think this is probably my new role. And it's not just being the scientific information source. There's plenty of that out there that's much more slick right. and much more attractive, in my opinion. Um, I hate listening to myself. I do think there's a place where I can take those claims apart in a very attractive way that people will be excited to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there you may be familiar with that uh, Dr. Zubin Damania, the uh, he goes by Z Dog MD, and he he obviously had that one where he attacked uh, what the health, um, and it was only like a ten minute video, but it it was huge, and a lot of people watched it, and I don't know how many people took away from it what they were supposed to take away from it. But what you're describing is, you know, sounds like potentially something similar where you're taking something that people might think, oh, this seems legit. This person, they got a Netflix contract to do a, a video. They must be credible. Well, no, they must not be. They must be entertaining <laughs> but, or Netflix wouldn't have picked them up. But it, Netflix isn't a team of scientists. They don't know. And so if you if you have something that is, you know, maybe potentially humorous, but debunks their garbage along the way. Or even, you know, um, Penn and Teller's bullshit was a very good example of something that was entertaining, but just went after it. So there's clearly a market for that kind of thing. Yeah, I, it, well, it, well, I kind of imagine this will be a combination of Penn and Teller's bullshit with Mystery Science Theater 3000. There you go. And I, I kind of, uh, it's kind of where I want to go. And I toyed with this idea a long time ago and realize that I'm watching something like genetic roulette and I'm just kind of being snarky and making fun of people's whatever, you know, uh, clothes or whatever, you know, Oh, I can't believe he has this on his you know desk in the background. And those are kind of funny things that people notice about these videos. So we talked about audience in the beginning. I want to reach out to the people who are the consumers of this bogus media. Right. And I want to just say to them, look, I want you to look at this carefully. I want you to think about what he just said. Now, does that make sense? I want to be something that somebody who watches something like GMO OMG or this new one by Jeffrey Smith, the secret ingredient or, um, you know, what the health or you name it. I want to be the, the little voice that says, okay, I understand you're watching this. I understand you appreciate it. Now let's look at it through a lens of a scientist and see why this drives me nuts. Think about this along with the others who are you're consuming media from. And I think that's my new audience. I think those are the folks I'm going to target next. And if we can drag some other folks who are like you, who are science enthusiasts, who want to fortify their positions, this will be attractive to them too, because now it's going to help you build your position when someone wants to discuss one of those crappy movies. You bring up an interesting concept. Maybe what we need to have is a um, a, a science board that rates the, you know, how like um, they have PolitiFact or whatever that rates with um, you know how how true that what that politician said was or whatever, we can start rating all these stupid documentaries. Yes, that was great science, or no, that was utter bullshit, or somewhere in between. 
That's actually a really interesting idea. I mean, you could do something like rotten GMO tomatoes or something. I There's got to be, you know, maybe there's a way that you can uh, have some sort of a rating system that says, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you hard. know, I, I will say that, you know, I've found that the more I follow like people like yourself and other people who are, um, you know, well, first, let's start off with like the really reputable people like AAAS and Nature and some of the, you know, the really peer review, you know, um, well-respected peer review journals and stuff like that. And then that sort of trickles down to people like yourself who you who cite those sources as to why you've done something or whatever. And I think at one point you were even involved with Nature a little bit, right? Um, maybe not too much directly other than we've published some work in the nature series of gotcha. journals but, and I'm on the editorial board of uh, one that's in the nature family, but that's gotcha. it. But you know what I mean? Like you start to realize that th- these people tend to be related. And so for me, you know, I've, I've sort of learned to understand who I can trust and who I can't just as a trickle down from those peer reviewed journals. In other words, if if you are have you know put something in one of those journals or you're citing those journals when you're reporting on something or something like that then i can say okay this person's probably pretty reputable because they're not citing i hate gmos.com as their source you know or something like that you know be sure. like and so you know and i've found that the science community like once you start to understand them you can kind of understand who's on the inside and who's on the outside a little bit but you also start to learn what are bullshit claims look like? Like, and just developing that skill alone, I think, has helped me a lot to be able to know. Uh, okay, that this doesn't make sense. Um, and I think, uh, like Brian Dunning had done a, a, like a podcast one time about, you know, how to sort of understand nonsense claims or whatever. And it was actually pretty insightful. But I think that's an important skill for a lot of people to try and learn is how to know, you know why that you don't have to necessarily understand science to to be able to apply some sort of skepticism and realize what they're making kind of doesn't or the claim they're making kind of doesn't make sense and why it doesn't make sense and that's really important especially in the era of predatory journals where there are so many journals where you can pay to get your article published that it really doesn't undergo a very rigorous uh, evaluation yet it attains the patina of a peer-reviewed article and there's a lot of that and it's it's the the thing that we really have to focus on and maybe this is something where you can get a thumbs up and thumbs down um uh system is how many times is this thing cited or how many times has people have people expanded the work and this is really the hallmark of the classic uh, anti-gmo movement articles is that none of them are ever replicated by themselves or independent others and so all these like you know oh the goat stomach stomach or the pig stomach study or the lumpy rat study or the potatoes back in 1997 these are the touchstones that these folks use consistently to say this is dangerous horrible technology but none of it is ever repeated independently and you would think that, you know, for how people say, well, Pustai, uh, he's, he was vilified in 1997 for saying that GMO tomatoes cause problems or potatoes cause problems. If that was real, right now in the age of proteomics and, and the, you know, genomics tools, 
millions of people, well, I shouldn't say millions, but certainly other groups would have replicated that. Right. Um, all the claims that Stephanie Seneff makes about, oh, glyphosate is getting in the proteins, that's never been shown once in any of the data. Um, Don Huber and his mystery organism, he it's never turned up anywhere in the thousands of studies where proteomics and genomics tools have been used. So all these people making these claims, not only is it never reproduced, is that independent research says they are lying to you. Right. There, there's no evidence for their claim. And yet they still continue to, to get speaking engagements and travel around the world lying to audiences about science. And that's a, that's a real problem. It is. And, you know, like the one thing I always try and tell people, I, I'm sure you're probably familiar with uh, Dr. Carl. I f don't ask me to pronounce his last name, but he always talks about, you know, everything's a poison. What matters is the dose. And I always, um, you know, I think about like when people argue against glyphosate or something like that. And I'm like, okay, what's the dosage? And what do you mean? Well, because that matters. <laughs> like, you know, if, if one, if one gram is dangerous and, you're only going to find, you know, one ten thousandth of a gram in a thing of food or whatever, you know, you'd have to eat way more than you could ever possibly eat to get to the danger, danger or the level of toxicity. Therefore, it's not really dangerous. But people, people don't understand that kind of stuff. And they just say, oh, if it's got any trace of this, um, it must be bad. And I'm like, well, okay, let me put it to you this way. There was a person who died on a radio podcast because they are on a radio show because they drank too much water. Like literally they died being poisoned by water. The most important, one of the most important things we take in as people and one of the most innocuous substances we could take in and they drank enough of it to make it a poison. On the flip side, the FDA has an acceptable level of cyanide that can be in your food because again, what matters is the dosage. And, and, to, and when, People don't wrap their head around that, you know, it's hard, it's hard to like, and that's where I was getting at when I would say like, sometimes if you just learn little bits, you can learn how to be skeptical. So when you start hearing people say, this is dangerous, that's dangerous. If they're not mentioning the dosage, don't listen to them because they're obviously, they're not speaking from a point of knowledge. They're just spreading fear. No, you're exactly it. And that, and that's the problem with, um, uh, you know, the, like the dirty dozen and the environmental working group and all these things. It's all about saying a non-zero number. Yeah, this is not a threat. This is something that isn't a problem, but it's present there in parts per billion. Right. And a, a part per billion is a second in 32 years. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I don't know what you were doing at, at 5.14 a.m. on January 3rd, 1974. You know, I mean, to think about that particular, how much resolution that is, how small of an amount this is, it, that you can consume those amounts, parts per billion amounts of glyphosate or whatever, and it is not going to affect you. Right. And, and, and that is assuming that you're even consuming it. Um, all of the studies that, um, that are out there um, are done by, a, by uh, a laboratory that's run by John Fagan in Iowa. So he's in the middle of the Corn Belt. He's an anti-GMO guy, and he's detecting glyphosate in everything, including in organic stuff where they're not allowed to use glyphosate. 
And in my world, when your negative control comes out as positive, that there's a problem there. Um, he said, well, no, it must be contaminated. Well, no, there's a much more um, easy explanation, and that is the method of detection is extremely sensitive and maybe isn't reliable. And um, there's other reasons we can discuss about why that may not be real. Right. But the bottom line is, is that the levels that are claimed to be detected are just simply not consequential. Right. Well, we could go on forever, but we're already in an hour and 33 <laughs> on what was supposed to be in an hour. So I should be respectful of your time, but that I, I think, um, you know, science is really important, and there's so many people who don't understand it, who don't seem to want to understand it, um, and 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 unfortunately, just want to believe what's easier to understand. And it's easier to understand somebody making a claim like, "Oh, this is dangerous," versus somebody like yourself explaining ex- exactly how it works, why it works, and therefore why it's safe. It's it's I don't know it. I guess we humans are maybe pre-programmed to be afraid of that, which we don't understand, even if it doesn't make sense to be. But, but I appreciate all that you do, you know, in debunking a lot of the, the garbage out there and trying to educate people. And at least to some extent, you've educated me and hopefully a lot of others who listen to your podcast. Well, good. Thank you so much for thinking about doing this. I think it was a lot of fun and a little fun to put on the interviewee hat for a while. Um, I don't have to be thinking ahead of the next question, <laughs> yeah. which, is always, which this was kind of a coast, you know, easy. Yeah. But thank you so much for thinking about doing this. It was really great. So if people want to listen to you or find you on Twitter, where where do they look? Um, so my website is www.logicallibertarian.com. And then uh, on Twitter, I'm lgclibertarian.com. Um, I'm typically trying to be, um, you know, a little humorous with what I do, and just, but mostly try to promote skepticism, critical thinking, and um, you know, the libertarian side is more promoting, you know, limited government, um, not no government. I'm not the anarchist, so don't don't accuse me of that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I I hope you know. I think the the there's that one saying about. Um, uh, for evil to succeed, or, or all that's needed for evil to succeed is for good people to do nothing. And and so I think you know, for me, I've I've tried to take on the mantle of debunking bad science, and and I know you obviously do a ton to do that, and, and hopefully encourage other people to learn a little bit more about science so they can also be the debunkers. And hopefully, if there's enough of this, it'll work like um, like a virus herd immunity. They, you get enough people debunking bad science, the good or, or the, debunking that bad science, and the bad science doesn't have a chance to spread. Yeah, maybe it's nerd immunity. Yeah, <laughs> we just coined a new phrase here. Yeah, so you better go get that one before this airs. Nerdimmunity.com. Uh, I bet it's already taken. But it's the basic idea that if there's enough people who are inoculated with the good thing science gives us, then the uh, viral problems of charlatans who want to scare people about their food uh, are much less penetrant. But thank you so much, Gary. This was a lot of fun and uh, really, really eye-opening. And, you know, listeners, thank you for enduring uh, an hour and 37 minutes of podcast. Uh, thank you very, very much. Write a review on iTunes and, you know, tell a friend. And uh, we're having a good time talking about the good things that science can do for us. Uh, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. 
Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.